Good morning, Be Free. Welcome. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here. We're a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, making disciples. It's so good to be here uh, with you guys this morning. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about how my day started. I got here. I opened the door and I set off the alarm. <laughs> and it was, a, it, was a, it was a wild... I was just standing outside waiting for the cops to show up. Um, they never did, thankfully. But... Um, all that to say, I know that all of us are starting our days with different things going on. Uh, maybe we had a hard time getting our kids out the door. Maybe we're nervous about something coming up down the road a little bit today. So what I want to do just for a minute here, let's take a moment of silence. Focus in on heart, our hearts on what we're going to do because we're going to look at God's word now. This is the part of our service where we look at God's word. And his word is his word and it is worth laboring at, understanding, so that we can believe, obey, and delight in the God it reveals to us. So let's focus our hearts on what we're about to do now. Heavenly Father, we give you this time. Speak to us, change us through these words, Lord. They are yours, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 12, 1 through 24. Acts 12, verses 1 through 24. It's the entire passage, the entire chapter, except the very last verse. So, Acts 12, 1 through 24. This passage is high octane. <laughs> I was uh, working on this passage uh, early this week, and I had to pick up Davy from school, and I kept on checking the clock because sometimes I get a little carried away in studying God's Word, and I didn't want it to happen this time. I didn't want to leave Davy. This passage is so fun. We see persecution. We see murder. We see an angel delivering somebody from prison. We see an angel striking somebody down. There is so much going on here, but it's not just an interesting passage. It's also a passage that has a lot to teach us very practically today what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. It shows us that we have a God where no matter how hopeless our situation seems, there is still hope because he is there. We have a God who cannot be beat, who cannot be stopped, who cannot be slowed down or delayed, a God who, if he makes a plan, his plan will be completed, and it will be carried out. That's the kind of God we need when we live in a world like this. And so this passage today, Acts chapter 12, verses 12, sorry, chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, is broken up into three parts. I'm going to move a little bit quickly. I'm going to slow down when we need to, and at the end, we're going to have it all tied together, and I pray that this is a blessing to you as we unpack God's Word. So let me pray one more time, dedicating this time to the Lord, asking Him to work uh, through me and through His Word. Lord, primarily what we're doing here is we're looking at your word, believing that, God, it is true, that it is authoritative, that it is sufficient, that it is inspired, that there is nothing in it that is not true. God, we look at it and we want to learn from it, not just so that we can stick it in our heads, but Lord, so that we can stick it in our hearts and worship you more truly as the God who we meet here. So God, do that today. Use this in ways I can't even begin to imagine. Shape us, change us. Don't let us leave the same people we were when we got here. We pray this, Lord, in your son's holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read those verses, and we're going to dive in. First five verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. All right, so this church has been growing, and with the growth of the church, as we know, has come a growth of persecution. Up to this point in the book of Acts, so far, we've seen most of that persecution has been coming from the Jewish community, the Jewish authorities. But here at this point, somebody else is getting in on this persecution game, and his name is Herod. Now, persecution is coming at the church from multiple angles now, and when I say Herod, I want to make sure you know who I'm talking about. I don't mean Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the man who built the temple and tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Herod the Great died when Jesus was still in Egypt. When he died, Jesus came back. The king that was on the throne when, Herod, when, when Jesus came back was Herod's son, a man named Herod Antipas. Herod was the one who beheaded Jesus, uh, John the Baptist and was ruling during the time of Jesus. But this Herod is Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great. It would be easier if they just thought of different names. And while uh, it doesn't matter exactly who it is, it's important for us just so that we have the context of where we're at. And there's also going to be Herod Agrippa II later on in the book of Acts. We won't worry about that right now. But we're not told the exact reason what caused Herod to decide to start persecuting the church. We don't know why he decided to lay violent hands on the church and to kill James. But what we do know is that when that happened, the Jews liked it. It pleased the Jews, and Herod basically said, hey, there's plenty more where that came from, and he arrested Peter as well. He says here, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And when he says bring him out, what he means is bring him out and put him to death. We know that for two reasons, because that's what he did to James, that's what pleased the Jews, but also because according to Jewish tradition, you're not supposed to put somebody to death during Passover. So he's waiting for after Passover, keeping him in prison until he can put him to death. So this is where we're at right now. This is what the church, where the church is at. One of their leaders, a man named John, uh, James, the brother of John. There's another James later, different James. James, the brother of John, he's been put to death. And Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, is on death row. This is a hopeless situation. If we were part of the church in Jerusalem at this time, we would start thinking, oh man, this is going downhill fast. But what we see is that even though the situation seems pretty hopeless, what is the church doing? It says right here, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I need to point this out really quickly. Peter is on death row. They're praying for him that he wouldn't die. But just recently, James was on death row, and he did die. We don't know. We're not, we're not told that the church was praying for the deliverance of James, but we have no reason to think that they weren't. In fact, what we know is that these two leaders were leaders of the church in Judea, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem at this time. This church wasn't any more predisposed for the to see the deliverance of Peter than it would have been to see the deliverance of John. So likely, this church had been praying for the deliverance of James to no avail. They'd likely been praying for the deliverance of James only to see God not answer their prayers with a yes, 
But what I love about this church here is that even though their prayers were not answered in the way that they wanted, they continue to labor in prayer. They continue to ask God to do something that seems impossible, even though last time God didn't answer the prayer the way that he had, they had hoped. And I want us to notice, notice that today in 2021 because it's easy to assume that prayer doesn't work when our prayers are answered with a no, isn't it? It's easy for us to assume that prayer doesn't really move the hand of God if we don't see his hand moving in the way that we want it to be moved. It's easy to lose faith, in other words, that God is reigning when it looks like his people are losing. It's easy to doubt the power of God when we don't see his hand working. But these Christians, they don't say, well, what's the point in praying if we're not going to get the answers we want? Rather, what we see here, they remained faithful to pray diligently and persistently. Diligently and persistently. Remember those words as we go forward, even though the situation felt hopeless. Because what we're going to see right now in the next couple of verses is that though this situation seemed hopeless, it wasn't as hopeless as it looked. So let's go on. Let's read chapters, uh, chapter 12, verses 6 through 11, and we'll see what happens next. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, that's bring him out to put him to death, on that very night, okay, so on the night when he was about to be killed, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door. They were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel of the Lord said, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people we're expecting. All right. So this is the night before his execution. In the, when the sun rose, he was going to be put to death. The church is praying and Peter is sleeping. We know the church is praying. We'll, we'll see that a little bit later. But right now, Peter is sleeping and he's sleeping between two soldiers. <laughs> he has two chains on him and there are sentries before the door guarding the prison. Plural. At least two. In other words, we look at the situation, and his situation is hopeless. There's not a window for him to make his escape here. There's no way for him to get away from this. Heavily guarded, heavily chained, locked up behind closed doors. But then an angel of the Lord shows up to him. And you know, when, when we talk about angels, there's a lot of hokiness in our beliefs around angels. And the reason why that is is because the Bible doesn't tell us all that much about angels. In fact, when we look at a lot of the major cults of the world, a lot of the major cults base their beliefs on the interaction, the strange teachings and involvement of angels in the world. We should be a little bit hesitant when we think about angels, just because the Bible doesn't tell us all that much about them. But here's what the Bible does tell us about angels. 
This is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14. What it says there is that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Let me break that down. An angel is a being whose job is to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. An angel's job is to help believers, to help the people of God. And who sends them? God does. Angels are beings sent by God to minister to us. So when we see angels work, when we hear angels speak, they're not working of their own power, of their own volition. They're not speaking their own words, their own thoughts. They're messengers sent from God. They're ministers sent from God. In other words, whatever we see an angel do, God gets credit. God gets the glory. And in this passage, an angel shows up and one by one, he goes through all the things that were making this situation seem hopeless. We see here that he was bound with two chains, but when the angel comes, these chains fell off his hands, verse 7. He was guarded by two soldiers, but when the angels come, we read, verse 10, he passed the first and the second guard. He was held behind prison doors, but when the angel came, iron gates opened of their own accord, verse 10. All the things that made the situation feel absolutely hopeless was no problem at all when the angel of the Lord came. These things seemed hopeless. But things that are hopeless are simple to God. Our God is not a God who sits up in heaven scratching his head wondering how he's going to handle situations. That doesn't mean that we can say what God will do, but we can say that we know what God can do. And God can do everything. And though Peter was dreaming, thought he was dreaming, all of a sudden he's out in the street, he's turned a corner, and as soon as the angel shows up, he disappears. And I love trying to put myself in Peter's head at this moment, because can you imagine what that would be like? Extravagant light, things opening before you, chains falling off your hands, thinking you're dreaming, and then crickets, dark, your lights, your eyes readjusting to the darkness. And what Luke says is that Peter came to himself. That's his way of saying, Peter said something to the effect of, oh man, that, that actually happened. Verse 11, actually, this is what he says. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What can stop our God? Not chains, not guards, not gates. He sends an angel, and it's as if these inanimate objects work from the Lord now, swinging open at his will, doing whatever he wants. Let's see what happens next. Join me in verse 12. We'll go to verse 17. When he, that's Peter, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. Okay, that's where the church is right now. They're still praying for him. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. I love Rhoda. You'll see in a second. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. 
But Peter continued knocking, and, uh, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, that's James the brother of Jesus, and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. All right. So, so there's Peter. He's finding himself in the middle of an empty street, uh, realizing, oh my gosh, that just happened. And his next move is to go and find shelter. And it's, it's a funny scene because he goes to this house, the house where he knows the church is, and he's knocking and he's knocking. Rhoda comes and she is so overjoyed, so excited that their prayers have been answered that she doesn't let him in. She rushes into everybody who's praying saying, guys, it happened. What we've been praying for took place. Peter is outside the gate. To which the brothers and the sisters say, you are out of your mind. And Rhoda says, no, really, it's him. I know his voice. So trust me, it's him. And the brothers say, it's his angel. Explain that to me. Nobody knows what that means. I've looked at so many books. People have weird guesses. And nobody knows what that means. <laughs> but we, what we have to notice here in this passage is that though the very thing they were planning and praying, praying for happened, when it happened, they still don't believe it. The very thing they were asking God to do, it happens. And they're saying, really? You're out of your mind. No, that's probably just his angel. And we look at this passage and we see the, we, we see the lack of faith, we might say, of this church. And our first thought might be to kind of scoff at them, scoff at their lack of faith. And, you know, perhaps we should shake our heads, right? Um, to pray and then to not believe that God answered the prayer when it happened. But what I appreciate about this passage is that it humanizes this church. We might not be able to defend them, but you know we can relate to them. Because we do that all the time. I am no stranger to praying for God to move and then making human explanations for what happened when it does happen. Not giving God the credit and the glory that he deserves for the things that I was praying for. I think we all do that a little bit. They were faithful to pray for the impossible, but we all know that it's hard to believe that God will actually do the impossible. But God answers their prayer even though their faith is relatively weak. And I think this is actually an important side note, and so this is a bit of a tangent, but it's an important one. I think that God's decision to answer our prayers in the affirmative, it does not come down to the level of faith with which we pray. The decisive factor, in other words, of whether or not God is going to answer our prayers does not come down to how certain we are that it's going to come true. I know that in the book of James, James does write that we have to ask in faith if God is going to answer us, but it doesn't say that we have to ask with a certain level of faith if God's going to answer us. In other words, like, if we want it bad enough, if we pray with enough certainty, it's going to twist his arm into action. I mean, because after all, when we pray, what do we do? We are submitting ourselves to the Lord. Very often when we pray, we get down on our knees to pray. Why? Not because we're getting into a posture of power. We're getting into a posture of weakness. 
A posture of submission, a posture of dependence, saying to the Lord, I am not God, you are, this is my request, God, will you do it? We can't force his hand if we pray hard enough, if we have enough faith. We make our requests made known to the Lord, and he makes his perfect decision. That's how prayer works. And what I love about this passage is that even though their weak is so visibly, faith is so visibly weak, God answered because God chose to answer. God's, our, the answers to our prayers come because God decides to use our prayers to accomplish his purposes. We pray deliberately and persistently, and he decides what to do and acts. And as this debate is happening inside of the house, Peter is just knocking. Guys, this is not a good time to have a debate. Come let me in. And eventually they come. They're shocked. He motions with his hands to quiet them down. He tells them what happens, has them pass it along to the brothers, to the, to the other apostles, and then he takes off. And incidentally, this is the last time we're going to see Peter for the entire book of Acts, except for a couple verses in chapter 15. Peter moves on. And so does this passage. This passage keeps going on, and in this last bit, and this is all going to tie together, in this last bit, we have focused in on the man who put Peter in chains in the first place. The man, in other words, who could not beat Peter because God did not want Peter yet killed. We look in at Herod. So let me read this last couple of verses here, uh, verses 18 to 24. We'll unpack that, and we're going to tie it all together. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what became of Peter, of course. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and, and ordered that they should be put to death. When he went down, then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is a new story now. Angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that's like his personal secretary, assistant, they asked him for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration, a speech, to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. <laughs> but the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. That's, it's an interesting passage. And it seems out of nowhere, doesn't it? The passage closes here by focusing in on Herod. That after dealing with the Peter debacle, the fact that Peter uh, disappeared, he goes back to his home, his home and the, goes back to Caesarea where he is embroiled in a, in a trade disagreement uh, with the region of Tyre and Sidon. If I can put the map up here on the screen, Tyre and Sidon, they're both um, port towns a little bit to the north, and Caesarea is another port town just a little bit to the south. And you see, Tyre and Sidon, they've actually relied upon the area of Caesarea for their food for centuries. We see this trade agreement going on all the way back in the book of Kings, and the book of Ezekiel. 
This is a historic, necessary uh, trade agreement. And what we find from this passage is that the people of Tyre and Sidon, they can't get their food if this trade agreement is cut off. And we don't know exactly what was going on here. The Bible doesn't tell us, but for some reason, Herod was upset with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Because he was angry with them, he created a trade embargo. He refused to continue trading with them, in so doing, cutting off the food supply to those towns in the north. And so the people from Tyre and Sidon, they send people to come to this guy named Blastus, a guy who has Herod's ear, and says, Blastus, help us out here, man. Talk to Herod for us. Help us achieve peace so that we can reinstitute trade with the region of Caesarea. And what it seems from this passage is that that plan works. And Herod goes up to Tyre and Sidon, and he sits down and he makes a speech to them. And we don't know what the speech is about. But think about this. He's there, he's making the speech. And the people in the crowd, they know it's important that Herod likes us. Because if Herod doesn't like us, he can cut off the food and we could all starve. It is important that we stay on good, uh, good terms with Herod. And so they go out of their way here to flatter Herod, yelling to him, this is the voice of a god and not of a man. And what happens next? We read, verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. It is, it's jarring. Uh, what happened and what does it mean? What happened is pretty simple. Basically, Herod let the crowds worship him as a god when he spoke to them, and God judged him by putting him to death. There's some disagreement about exactly what was going on here, how it happened. It doesn't matter. The point is, God made it happen. God struck him down here, and Herod became worm food. But why did it happen? Better question, what does it mean? <laughs> the crowd was shouting out to Herod, you are a God and not a man. This is the voice of a God and not of a man. But the one true God is the one who brings about an end for all men. And the thing that we have to recognize here also is that he says these words to them. They praise him as God, and then he never says another word again. But verse 24 says that the word of God increased and multiplied. The point of this passage is that when these people say to Herod that he is a God, God steps in to say, no, you're not. We see Herod and God compared in two different ways. In God's eternality and his human temporality. I don't know if that's a word. But the fact that he's temp temporary and God is eternal, we see those two things compared. And God is God. He is not. We look at the words of Herod and the word of God. Herod's words and God's does not. God's words increase and multiply and spread. God is God and Herod is not. And that is how our passage ends. And you might step back now and look at the entire message, these three main parts, the, the persecuted praying church, the, the uh, imprisoned and released Peter, and then uh, the arrogant and judged Herod, and think, how do these three things go together? And I think I can summarize it like this. 
If verses 1 through 17 tell us that nothing can stop God, then verses 18 through 24 tell us that no one can stop God. Not even a king. Nothing can stop God, not chains, not guards, not gates. And now we see that no one can stop God, not even a king. And guys, when I zoom out and I just look at the word of God from beginning to end, what I realize is, yes, this is true in this passage. This is true in the book of Acts. And yes, this is true now. But this, is how, this has always been true. This is always what we've seen about our God all the way through the book books of the Bible, all the way from the beginning. Nothing can stop our God. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 18 when Sarah was doubtful that she could give birth to a son even in her old age. When she doubts, the Lord says to her in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then in Luke chapter 1, when Mary asks the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answers her, Luke 1, 37, nothing will be impossible with God. And then in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells his disciples that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to go through an eye of the needle. And the disciples asked him, who then can be saved? And Jesus answers that question, Matthew 19 too. With man, this is impossible. <laughs> but with God, all things are possible. What this is telling us is that chains, guards, gates, they are just the next in a long list of things that are unable to stop our God. This is par for the course for our Lord. And not only can nothing stop our Lord, no one can stop our God. Exodus chapter 12, when Pharaoh refused to let the people of God go, God forced his hand by putting his son to death. Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, when Sennacherib's army stood at the walls of Judea, of Judah, in Jerusalem, mocking the one true God, promising the destruction of the people of God, God went out and with a snap of his fingers struck down 185,000 soldiers and then reached out his long arm to kill the king in his own temple, in his own land. And then in Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar looked out over all of Bam Babylon and proceeded to glorify himself and his own greatness, God takes away his sanity, making him eat grass like a cow. And when God gives him his sanity back, Nebuchadnezzar sings a song of praise to God. The pagan king worshiping the one true God because he sees this about this God. That he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? When we go through the story of the Bible, what we see is not only can nothing stop our God, but no one can stop our God. And Herod is just the next king in a long line of kings who have found themselves unable to stop our God. We can add to that list the prince of darkness. Nothing can stop our God. Not chains, not guards, not gates. And no one can stop our God. Not even a king. Because our God is God. And he is in the business of doing impossible things. If he wants to make a man out of dirt, he can do it. If he wants to make somebody out of a rib, he can do that too. If he wants to change people's language in their mouth, he can do that. If he wants to rain fire from heaven, he can do that too. If he wants to put life in a barren womb, if he wants to raise his son out of a now empty tomb, he can do that. If he wants to turn water into blood, divide the waters, bring waters from a rock, walk on waters, turn water into wine, he can do that. Nothing 
and no one can stop our gods, not, cha- not our God, not chains, not guards, not gates, not even death. Because if you're a believer, you know this. All you have to do is look at yourself. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The Bible doesn't say that you were sick. Sick people heal. (laughs) Dead people don't heal. You were dead. You weren't going down the wrong path, but he put his arm around you and put you in the right direction. No, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says this, though, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead... And your trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Talk about doing the impossible. And that's a miracle he still does. Whatever our God sets his heart to will be accomplished, and nothing can stand in his way. And so with all this in mind, we go back to remember what the Christians did in verse 5. They prayed. They were praying specifically for God to do something which, humanly speaking, was impossible. The next day wasn't the trial for Peter. It was the execution of Peter. The decision had been made. He was locked up just waiting for it to happen. From every human perspective, it was an impossible situation. But still they prayed. And what John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, we'll have it up here on the screen, he says this, And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, key words there, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. In other words, when we pray according to God's wills, our prayers are heard by God and our prayers move the hand of God. So we can pray. We should pray. We must pray, actually, deliberately and persistently for God to do the impossible. Guys, we all have things that feel impossible. And so I'm talking now to you parents with unbelieving kids. Pray deliberately and persistently for the salvation of your kids. He can do that. I'm talking to you Husbands with unbelieving wives, wives with unbelieving husbands. Pray deliberately, persistently. I know it feels like I've prayed for long, so long. Why keep going? Keep going. God can do it. Keep praying. I'm talking to you as well if you're somebody who has a sin so deeply enrooted in your life that you cannot seem to weed it out. Keep praying for the Lord's help. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's just a natural disposition that does not please the heart of the Lord. Keep praying. Keep asking for him to work in you, to root that out of you, to soften up the soil so that it can be pulled out from the roots. I'm praying for those of you who are in broken marriages, maybe have broken relationships with your kids, with your neighbors, with some friends. Don't stop praying for those marriages. Don't stop praying for those relationships. God can do it. Pray deliberately, and persistently. He hears our prayers, and when we pray according to his will, if he chooses, and it is in his hands, he will answer. Nothing is impossible for our God. I want to share with you five things that I pray deliberately and persistently for. 
Five things that I pray deliberately and persistently for, actually, every single day. And I, I have a hard time, I'm just talking about myself, I have a hard time um, having a routine of prayer. So I'm just going to, I got incredibly just practical a couple of years ago, and I set, I set some alarms on my phone. Um, I have them go off four times a day. I use an app that helps, it's called Echo Prayer. You don't have to use that, you can just use alarms on your phone or whatever works for you. But it just gives me little nudges, little hints. Don't stop praying for these things. Every morning at 7 a.m., I get a little ding from my phone, and it reminds me to pray deliberately and persistently for two families in our church. I pray for two different families, members and attenders of this church family, every single morning. Different families, every day. Why? Well, because I'm desperate for your good and your growth. I want you to know the joy and the delight in the Lord that I know. I want your joy in the Lord to surpass mine. I want your love for his word and his church to grow. I want it to surpass mine. I want you to burn bright in this community so that this town scratches its head at you. I pray deliberately and persistently for that, for you. At 8 a.m., my phone dings again, and it reminds me to pray to the Lord for wisdom because God knows I need it to lead this church, to lead my family, to live for his glory at all, to live in this day. At 1 p.m., my phone dings again, and it reminds me to pray for my wife and daughter because I love them more than any other people in the world. (laughs) And I can't lead them if I don't pray for them. And I know that 1 o'clock is a hard time with a toddler, so I pray for them then. And at 2 o'clock, my phone dings again, And I pray that God would bring workers for the harvest in New England. We need the gospel in New England. (laughs) And in John chapter 10, God tells me, sorry, Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells me to pray earnestly for that. I want to pray for that. That God would bring workers to the harvest in New England until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And then every night at bedtime, I pray for my kids in the plural. Pray for Davy that she would be a woman who is bold for what is true and compassionate in spirit. Those words are a mantra every evening for us. And then for baby number two, we pray that he or she would be a person of wisdom and of courage and of faith. Those are the things that I pray deliberately and persistently for. Why? Because I'm desperate for them, because he's God and because he can. If my prayers are according to his will, I know he will. I cannot force his hand, but I can pray. And he tells me to, so I will. Will you? What are are you desperate for? What are the things that you are desperate to see the Lord do in your life, in the lives of the people you love, in your community, in the world? Because I can tell you that no shift of culture, no attack of the enemy, no political party, no social trend, no sin of your own heart is going to throw off the plans of God if he chooses to do it. Because nothing and no one will stop our God. And so what is it for you? I want to encourage you to make a list. Set alarms on your phone. Use that Echo Prayer app. Do whatever you need. Use Post-it notes. Write it on your hand every morning. But deliberately and persistently beg the Lord to do his work in the world. And so what we're going to do now at the end is we are going to pray. Because prayer does move the hand 
of God. We're going to pray deliberately and persistently because we know that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear and he will move if it's his will. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we are amazed at the fact that you hear us at all. You are more mighty than any king who has ever lived. You are, you are better, you are more good than any human who has ever lived. You are awesome, righteous, glorious, Lord, and our comprehension of you does not even begin to scratch the surface. And yet, when we speak in the quiet of our hearts, you hear us. Why do you care? Why do you care enough to, to listen to what I have to say in this uh, s- small group of believers in Alton, New Hampshire? Why do you care? Lord, you care because you loved us enough to send your son to die on a cross for us so that you could have a relationship with us, rising again to give us life so that we could share eternal life with you, Lord. You care because you adopted us. We're your kids. And so, God, we come before you boldly, but also humbly and submissively, making our requests before you, asking you, Lord, work in the life of our church. Stir a deeper longing in us for the things of you. Illuminate your word to make it more rich and beautiful for us. Bind deeper relationships between us. Give, her a deeper, give us a deeper delight in the gospel, Lord. May, uh, may we have opportunity and boldness to share your truth with our community, Lord. And may we walk faithfully even when things are hard in our world. We pray desperately as well, Lord, for our town, that there would be revival here. And when I say revival, I don't mean some mystical thing. I mean that the, holy, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be heard and believed and that you would give new life to people who are right now dead. That's what we want. And you can do it. You've done it before. Lord, do it again. Use us. Show us how you want us to act. To bring that about, we are at your feet. These things and a million things aside, we could pray, Lord, but I'll end it there. Thank you for the chance to worship you and for the joy of being your people. We love you, God. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.